Good morning. It's such a delight to uh, bring God's Word to you this morning, and especially to kick off our, our, our habitual summer series going through the Psalms. And I'm so grateful for Randy designing the service and for Craig stepping in to lead for him uh, during this time as he's grading papers. So I appreciate you stepping up in that way and leading us so well. And that's the joy of preaching through books of the Bible and, and singing psalms that reflect on the text of Scripture. Uh, this one did so well today. And I, and I love that we do that as a church. It's our habit to, to pick up where we left off. Psalm 60 last summer, now Psalm 61 today. Now, Charles Spurgeon, famous British preacher of the 19th century, he once tells of how he was utterly depressed in spirit and soul, discouraged and failing in health. Uh, just before leaving for some recuperation, he preached on, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The experience was so sad that he wished it would never happen again. Afterwards, a man came to see him, and Spurgeon described him later as one step away from the insane asylum, his head bulging, his hands nervous, and his spirit totally depressed. The man told Spurgeon that after hearing his sermon, he felt that Spurgeon was the only one who could understand him, and so he had come. Spurgeon comforted him as best he knew how from his own sad experience. Now, five years later, Spurgeon had not seen the man, but, quote, just last night, he was delivering a student to his, uh, lectures to his students at the college, he says, I saw him. It was like night and day. He was completely changed. Spurgeon concluded that he was willing to undergo hundreds of such experiences now that he knew God permitted it to happen so that he could know and sympathize with people under similar predicaments. Today, as we read this psalm, a psalm of lament, maybe some of you have come into this gathering today completely overwhelmed. Maybe you've come into this gathering today and you're suffering. Whether you're suffering from a rebellious child and you want that child to follow Christ and know Christ. Whether you're suffering from the loss of a loved one, whether recently or even from a long time ago. Or maybe a new cancer diagnosis that's been devastating to you and your family. Or maybe persecution or suffering of some kind. And for you, in this predicament, you feel weak. You feel like this is hard. And it is. As the Apostle Paul says that yes, we are destined to be saved, but not only that, also to suffer for Christ's sake. We will suffer. We will experience it in this life, and it's a part of life. But how have you responded in your suffering is an important question we must ask. Have you lost sight of the purpose that you may learn that God has for you in your suffering? We must see the psalmist in his lament and resolve to respond as he did. Now look at the text with me in Psalm 61. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been, a refu- you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. 
You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. If I were to summarize this in a proposition, this message is that we must turn to the Lord when we face insurmountable difficulty. We must turn to the Lord when we face insurmountable difficulty so that we might recall his faithfulness, do his will, and rejoice in his eternal reign. Let me read that again. We must turn to the Lord when we face insurmountable difficulty so that we might recall his faithfulness, do his will, and rejoice in his eternal reign. Now, the first reason we must turn to the Lord when we face insurmountable difficulty is because we faint in adversity, and only God can protect us. The, the context of this psalm, it's, it's, it's a psalm from the time of Absalom, composed in Gilead, when the army of the king had smitten the rebels in the wood of Ephraim, says one commentator. That's one interpretation. The other is that during the post-exile period of the people of Israel, they refer to David's throne and thus his heirs, those who succeed him in the throne, and they're referring to him in this psalm, and they're longing to return back to Israel. But I think regardless of the interpretation of the, the context, the background, the text still is the same. And I believe it's David here, in case you wanted to know. So as we dive into our text, we look at verse 1. He says, hear. This is the word Shema. We, we hear this when we quote Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That very popular verse that we often focus with parenting. And it's the same one here. It's, it's hear, God, listen. And this cry he gives, it's, it's, he says, hear my cry. And, and the, the Hebrew brings us out a lot more to be more of a cry of lamentation. Now, it could be a cry of rejoicing. It's used in either context, but the context tells us he's not rejoicing right now at the beginning of this psalm. He's lamenting because his heart is faint. He cries out to God in and, and lament, oh God, he knows him. He loves him, and as he cries out to him, he's, he wants him to do something. Listen, listen to my prayer. He feels far from God, and we know that from the very next part of the verse. From the end of the earth I call to you. Now he probably wasn't literally on the other side of the world, but it's a figure of speech, it's hyperbolic language to communicate to the Lord, and for us who are reading today, how he felt in the midst of this trial, far from God. And why would he say he's far from God? Well, Jerusalem was the place of worship, the temple. And so the presence of God dwelt, well, the temple wasn't built yet, but the, it dwelt in the tabernacle. And he felt far from God, and he was geographically far from God. But in this time, as he thinks about this, he, remember, David is fleeing Absalom. He was not near the presence of God. So this language is highlighting the despair. It's highlighting the lament of the psalmist. And this is particularly emphasized even further when you read the rest of the sentence. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. As one commentator said, David was overwhelmed in his spirit with 
the alienation and the distress of his situation so that he could not even make a decision. He was losing his will to resist. Whatever his trouble was, it was serious enough almost to bring him to despair. But instead of giving into despair, we see him ask God to lead him. We see him ask God to lead him. Look at the text. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He cries out in lamentation. He wants God to listen to his prayer. He feels far from God and his heart is faint. And instead of giving in to that despair, he calls out to God, lead me, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's hard to really miss and even make the parallel to what we've just been studying in the book of Exodus. How God led his people He was there, his presence was with him in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God was with his people and he led them to the Red Sea. He led them through it and through the wilderness. God was with his people. He leads his people in distress. He leads his people when their heart is faint. So David knew he could call on him. He knew he could come to him. The psalmist is crying out to God. He's pleading with God to take him to where he cannot get on his own. Notice the language, the rock that is higher than I. It's inaccessible to him. He's not able to get there in his own strength. So he cries out how? In faith. And what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is reliance upon God. It's looking to him and choosing to take that next step of obedience despite the circumstances, which is what he is doing here. He's remembering God as his refuge and strong tower, which we see in the next part of this verse. Look down at verse three. He says, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Growing up near the, near the Gulf, we know very well hurricane season, and it's coming upon us. And with hurricane season, sometimes you might live in a, a home that's not quite safe for a category five hurricane. So what do people often do? They flee. They go to a place that's safer, a place of refuge, or maybe they go somewhere in town that's definitely hurricane-proof building, and they'll take refuge there from the storm. They'll find safety and protection regardless of what might come through a dangerous storm. That's the picture we see here. God is a refuge to David. He's a strong tower against the enemy. And think about if he's the rock that's higher than he is, as a strong tower, towering high above the enemies, his enemies can't reach him. A strong tower against the enemy. Now, again here, it is in great difficulty that the psalmist remembers what God has done. When his heart is faint, he remembers. And based upon what he remembers, he appeals to God. What do you remember about God? What do you remember about how God has delivered you through X, Y, or Z? Just think back with me. Think back with me. And maybe you didn't respond rightly to the Lord. Well, let's look at David and let's see how he responded to the Lord. Look at the text. He says in verse four, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me abide in your tent forever. When he's saying tent, it's a reference to the tabernacle. He wants to be in God's presence He wants to be near to the Lord. And as we know from other Psalms, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. What a comfort. And David knows that. He wrote that Psalm. And so David today, in this Psalm, 
He says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Some translations might say, let me sojourn. And it it all carries this idea of being permitted or invited to dwell in God's presence. As we think about that, maybe today you're here and you are going through a trial or you're suffering in some way, shape, or form. And this is not something that's just true for believers or unbelievers, it's true for everybody. If you're in Christ, we'll suffer. If you're not in Christ, you're going to suffer. And I don't know how you get through it. But as we look, look at this and look at David and his response to the Lord, this dwelling is a place that God invites us to. In the place where we dwell with the Lord today is in his word. We don't go to some holy site and say, God is in this place. You know where God is? God is in his word. You want to know God? Be in his word. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And we see God at work in and through his word among his people. So being here among the gathering of the body of Christ. And don't let me go too quickly over that phrase. The body of Christ. You see, when we dwell as believers together and we're stirring one another up to love and good works, centered around his word, God is present with us. So as we think about David and his longing and suffering, he could have easily taken a more, I know I'm being a little anachronistic, but a little more modern approach. How do we like to handle suffering nowadays? Many people like to seclude themselves, to hide, to not come before others, to keep it to themselves, to make it look like everything is all together on the outside. When in reality, it's not. It's not. You know, the the Proverbs say that he who isolates himself, he breaks out against all sound judgment. And he seeks his own desire. Maybe that's you today. You're the introverted person and you use that label to say, I don't need to open up to anybody. As an extrovert, I I say, it's easy for me to do that. But listen, we all need each other. In isolation, sinful isolation, it's, it's bad for you. It's horrible for you. It breaks out against all sound judgment and you can't think rightly. And so we need each other in the body of Christ. We need to be in God's presence and we need to grow in his word. Now notice, the importance of this dwelling was not just for, hey, let me get through this trial. We all know people like that, right? Fairweather friends, we call them, or fairweather Christians, we also might call them. Things are going rough, so oh, I need to go to God right now because things are rough. And then things get better, and you kind of forget God, and you move on with your life. But notice what David says. He didn't say, let me dwell in your tent until this trial's done. Let me dwell in your tent forever, forever. Given what this word sojourn means, Alan Ross says it expresses the relationship of a guest to a host. Hospitality. It would indicate that he knows he does not belong there, that he is a guest in the sanctuary, but he does not want his stay to end. And oh, believer, when God has comforted you in the midst of the trial, I hope you long to not only just stay there when the trial is done, but to continue to visit the fountain of living waters, the fountain of life the person of Jesus Christ and his word. As we think about the Lord and we think about the rest of this verse in verse four, he says, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings in this imagery of a bird caring for her young. 
protecting them from any enemies and sheltering them from the storm. We see that beautiful picture of God's tender, loving care for his people. Now, there's something about us facing trials over and over again that shape us into stronger people. Maybe today, you're in, like I've already addressed, you're maybe in the midst of a trial and you're wondering, when is this going to end? We all have limits and sometimes we might feel like we hit those limits. Why? Well, we're a finite people. David himself said, my heart is faint. He was the end of himself. Now, don't you remember some of the trials of your youth? I know sometimes I see it in my own kids and in other kids. They, they get to a certain extent and then that's it. They're at the end of themselves. They're breaking down. They're having a hard time with it, right? And we've all been there. We've all been there. Maybe they drop their ice cream and it lands in the dirt and it's the end of the world, right? It's the end of the world. We've seen that before. Or uh, maybe your sports team loses and you just, you're, you're wrecked for the rest of the week, right? Uh, we we kinda, I kind of respond in ways that, that really show a sense of devastation or, or suffering but, or weakness. Or maybe it's more serious things. We're insulted. Or we suffer sickness. We lose someone we love or we watch others suffer and that just hurts us because we're sympathetic. Maybe we're let down by someone we looked up to. Maybe we find ourselves learning lessons the hard way because of bad decisions. Maybe we suffer financial hardship, regardless of what it is. As we suffer, our toleration of that suffering grows. As we turn to the Lord, we might say our suffering muscles are are being worked on and we're growing and we're getting stronger. As long as we're turning to the Lord in those moments of suffering. As we remember his promises. Maybe if you've suffered much as you've walked with Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That the trials you faced when you were first a believer, maybe you might even almost be like, man, I'm embarrassed. I've responded that way in suffering. But you've impatiently endured and you've grown. And if we think about the context here with David, remember before he ever became king, he was 14 years in the wilderness running from Saul. He had already fled and suffered and been far from God's presence. And now in the time of Absalom, it's happened again. It's happened again. Makes me think of what James says in in his letter. How we should face our trials. Count it all joy. When we face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our faith in Christ through the trials we endure, produce a steadfastness. A steadfastness that we need. But until we are at our eternal rest in glory, we must frequently return to Christ, the rock who is higher than I, as we are through the wilderness of life. And I hope through Psalms like this, you can see the necessity of responding right in trial. Responding rightly in trial. I think of Spurgeon's well-known quote when he says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Thanking God for the trials we're in. So how could we apply this and, and think about it? Well, I think this psalm helps us see that one, we must be a people of prayer. We must go to God with our needs and in our prayer, number two, we must remember what God has done. We must recall those things to mind. And number three, we must ask God what we need. God, I need this. Express that to him. Yes, he knows everything you need before you ask, but it puts you on the same page with him and how you humble yourself in recognizing you need him and recognizing 
and humility that God is worthy of your worship in that time. But also, number four, given that this is a psalm, this is something that was sung, a lament that was sung, so we should sing in the midst of our troubles. One of the greatest blessings for the saint in the midst of our trials is singing to the Lord. Spurgeon once said, sing in trouble, again, because God loves to hear his people sing in the night. At no time does God love his children's singing so well as when he has hidden his face from them and they are all in darkness. Sing then, Christian, for singing pleases God. So as we saw, the first reason we must turn to the Lord is because we faint in adversity and only God can protect us. We must Turn to the Lord when we face insurmountable difficulties so that we might recall his faithfulness, do his will, and rejoice in his reign. And so the second reason we must do that is so that we may enjoy his provision and pray for the fulfillment of his reign. Look at verse 5 with me. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. You see, the psalmist has confidence that God will answer his prayer. His prayer to come and dwell in the tent forever, to be under the refuge and shelter of the wings. You see, this confidence that he has, it's palatable. He recalls what God has done, and in verse 5, as Alan Ross says, he says, the line means, when he prayed, this line, verse 5, when he prayed, he made vows with those prayers, vows to praise and serve the Lord. They were vows made during duress. We've been there, right? Maybe really young in your faith, you might have said, God, if you just get me through this, I'll serve you with my life. God, if you... Help me through this problem. I, I, I promise I'll change. And we, we make vows. That's a vow. And these vows made during duress, he is saying here, David is saying that God not only heard his vows, but as a response, look at verse 5. He says, you have given me the heritage or inheritance of those who fear your name. Now, this heritage may refer to physical land as we think of Joshua and the allotting of the land. And they were living in the land at the time but also may refer to the benefits of life in covenant with God. Remember that he made a covenant. God made a covenant with David. And we'll get to that in just a second. As we think about this, so he says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We've heard this many times in church. To fear the Lord, as Proverbs will say, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Those who have it, it leads to a long life. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Fearing the Lord is a healthy thing. But fearing the Lord, it has to do with seeing God for who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture and responding with worship, with reverence, and with respect. And as an unbeliever, with terror. Recognizing that if I don't respond to this God rightly in faith and I reject his salvation, he will judge me. Now in verse 6, 
after having expressed this confidence in God and his, God's gracious purpose for his people, he makes an important petition. He asks God something. Prolong the life of the king. Literally, you will add days to the king. And then he says, may his years endure to all generations. This verse is a desire and petition. But clearly, David himself cannot live forever, so he's talking about his seed and God's covenant. God's promise to all who will sit on his throne. And when did God establish his covenant? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 to 17. I'll read it for you. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's God's covenant with David. God's covenant promise to David. And this covenant is an establishment of this throne forever. Forever. Remember the context, 2 Samuel 15, Absalom's rebellion takes place. David flees. Now when David flees, he says something at one point, and I want you to hear this, just a few short verses in 2 Samuel 15. And and it shows this attitude that he has in Psalm 61. Listen, starting in 15 verse 24. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God, And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king, David, said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. So he could have said, no, I'm taking the ark with me. We're going to go, because I know God's with me, not with Absalom, his own son. No, no, he, send it back. Why? If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Wow. What faith. David was suffering immensely. His own son betrayed him. Took over. And he flees. 
He could have responded vindictively, pridefully saying, no, I'm the king. God made the covenant with me. He trusted the Lord. Let the Lord do what seems good to him. Beloved, is that how we respond in trial? I know sometimes my heart doesn't respond that way. Sometimes our attitudes can be off, fleshly and worldly when we, when we hit a trial and we don't respond in a way that honors the Lord. You've been there. I've been there. But oh, if we could say with David, oh Lord, do what seems good to you. If this suffering may continue, do what seems good to you. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. My heart is faint. God, I need you. I want to dwell with you. Is that your approach to your suffering today? May we be encouraged and conformed to the image of Christ because of this testimony of David. Now the Lord protected David and brought him back to his throne after Absalom's death. So a lot of this imagery is beginning to make sense, isn't it? This refuge and strong tower. David's been here before. He fled from Saul. He's fled from Absalom. No matter what's happened, God has sustained him. God is the one who will faithfully keep his covenant. And David recalls this by proclaiming through the song, the promises of God. And in verse seven, may he be enthroned forever before God. This is an intercession. He's, he's going before God on behalf of not only himself, but also all who would be enthroned after him. And this, that this would last for eternity because God is going to keep his word. He's recalling these promises and how God would do it. How would he do it? Well, he would appoint. He would choose to do what? To have this king guarded. And how might he be watched over and guarded? By steadfast love and faithfulness. This word for steadfast love is this word that means covenant loyal love. This love is connected to the covenant. It's based and rooted in what God has declared and said. And as as the Lord is the one looking over it, it's not David who will maintain himself. As we've seen, the Lord did what was good, seemed good to him. He brought him back. But he, he could have said, let the Lord decide. I think of Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It, the Lord must be at the center. The Lord must be the one who is worshipped and praised and prayed to and who's appointing over our lives, his steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over us. Which leads David now to respond in verse 8. And he says, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. We learn, yes, who he's praying for here. Yes, his lineage, but himself. He will sing praises to God. And notice, he doesn't say he will only sing when things are going well in the kingdom. The circumstance is not even mentioned in verse 8. The one being praised is what's emphasized. To your name. To the name above every name. And as we think about that as Christians, there's something about the name of Jesus. It's the name that is above every name. And he's going to sing praises to King Jesus. We should sing praises to King Jesus. He is worthy of our worship as we keep our word to him. We say we're going to follow you. We say, Christ, we trust in you. We've repented it. In, of our sin, and we're, we're coming after you, we're following your steps, lead us as we go, as we make disciples, as we baptize people, and, and they join the church, and as we grow, 
as we teach others to observe all that you have commanded, we're going to perform that vow. We're going to perform the vows of a disciple. In 1 John 2, 6, remember it says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we call ourselves Christians, it shouldn't just be something that comes from our lips, but from our life from our actions, not just some truth that we propositionally hold and say, yeah, we believe this in theory. No, but it comes out in our actions. It comes out in our love for one another, in our care for one another. So as we think about this text as a whole, it's important to see as we, going through Old Testament passages in the Psalms, it's always pointing forward to Christ. Because Christ is Lord of all. He's eternal God, very God of very God. And as we think about who he is, he alone is to be feared and trusted. He's the rock of ages, the cleft for me. We should hide ourselves in him. But we as men, we've been separated from God because of our sin. We're weak in comparison to God. We can never make it up that mountain. We must be brought to him. He must take us to him. And the way we get to him is through Christ. Christ, the curse bearer. Because the curse of sin is upon us, we can never approach God. One of the things I love to mention when I'm doing apologetics on campus at LSU, and someone might come to me and say, well, there's many ways to God. There's many ways up the mountain to God. And they include Christ as one of those many ways. We all know that verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The thing that separates Christianity from all other religions in the world is that it's not that we work our way to God. That's what every other religion teaches. Pray, chant, meditate, offer sacrifices, do these different things, and maybe God will accept you. The thing is, with Christianity, it's completely the opposite. God knows we can never make it up to him. So what does he do? He comes down to us. He came down to us in Christ. In Christ bore our curse, the curse of our sin on the cross, and now we rest in his finished work because he rose again from the grave, because he is alive, because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And today, hearing that gospel message, if you're an unbeliever, you stand in opposition to God. You're an enemy of God, and you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin, which is not satisfying which will destroy you. I, what comes to my mind as I'm sitting here thinking today, maybe if you're an unbeliever and you're in church today and you're hearing this gospel message and maybe you're uncomfortable, let me read this text to you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If that's you today, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what's important if you're an unbeliever about me saying this right now? Everyone in this room used to, who's a believer in Christ, a member here at this church, used to be a part of that list. Used to be a part of that list. We now inherit the kingdom of God because of Jesus, which is what Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. We used to be a part of that list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, but now we will. Why? Because he goes on to say, but you were washed. You were sanctified. 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So today, unbeliever, if that's you, I want to urge you to repent and turn to Christ alone. We must turn to the Lord when we face insurmountable difficulty so that we might recall his faithfulness, do his will, and rejoice in his eternal reign. We must turn to him because we faint in adversity and only God can protect us. We must turn to him so that we might enjoy his provision and rejoice in the fulfillment of his reign. So if you're a believer in Christ and you're currently suffering, I want to encourage you to not be afraid. To turn to God in your suffering and find comfort in him. John Newton said, if the Lord be with us, we have no cause of fear. His eye is upon us. His arm is over us. His ear open to our prayer. His grace sufficient. His promise unchangeable. So if you're suffering, don't be afraid. But also if you're suffering, give thanks. Yes, give thanks. You must give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you give thanks for God in your suffering? Even as you cry out to him for help, thank him that you can. We thank God for the trials we find ourselves in. And that seems so against our nature, rejoicing in suffering. But it's because of our perspective as Christians. So yes, you must not fear. You must give thanks, but you must gain perspective. You must gain perspective. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, the apostle Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Did you see that in the text? This light, momentary affliction. You might object, light? How can it be light? How can it be light when I've lost my loved one? How can it be light when I've gotten this cancer diagnosis? How can this momentary affliction be light when my child won't listen to me and he rebels? How can this be light when I'm on the brink of financial ruin? How can this be light when I've lost my job? How can this be light? The Apostle Paul... He's got no idea what he's talking about. Well, really? Let's go to what he said earlier in the text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to Paul and his affliction. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now notice how he describes his affliction here versus what he says a few chapters later. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Sounds like his heart was faint. So utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, Paul knew heavy affliction. But notice in 2 Corinthians 4 what he's doing. He's saying all affliction, in light of eternity, it's light. 
and it's just momentary. Beloved, if you're suffering today, it will pass. It will pass. Eternity's coming. Life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. I, I keep walking around to all these graduations and seeing and pe- people graduate who were in seventh grade when I got here, and I'm like, man, they're growing up fast. <laughs> seeing my kids get taller, I'm like, oh, what's going on? You're, you're growing up fast. Some of y'all who saw Carly and Cameron as babies, you're like, man, they're married. They're growing up fast. <laughs> Time flies. Life is a vapor. How are you looking at your suffering in that way? It's a light momentary affliction. We should not respond wrongly. In closing, I want to close with this quote from Spurgeon. As you're waiting for eternity, as you're waiting for the suffering to end, wait a little longer. Ah, beloved, how despicable our troubles and trials will seem when we look back on them. Looking at them here in the prospect, they seem immense, but when we get to heaven, they will seem to us just nothing at all. Let us go on, therefore, And if the night be ever so dark, remember there is not a night that shall not have a morning. And that morning is to come by and by. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our refuge. And we pray, God, for those suffering today, that you would lead us to the rock that is higher than ourselves. When our heart is faint, when it's overwhelmed or anxious or depressed, God, help us to look to you, our mighty fortress, our strong tower against the enemy. We know the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We know that even as Jesus said to Peter that the devil has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. We're reminded of the wickedness of the devil and his work in this world, through the world and through his own agents, but also through our own flesh. And God, we pray that we would resist him and flee from him and submit ourselves to you in the midst of these trials. That we would not have the attitude of Job's wife who said, curse God and die. But we would have the attitude of Job who said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. Help us to handle this light and momentary affliction with joy, without fear, with thanks. Because your throne is established forever. Jesus reigns. He has defeated death and he has risen again. And for that fact, we look to you in hope and in faith. And today, if you're under the sound of my voice, if you're an unbeliever in this room, God calls you to repent. And at this time, we're going to have a time where you can respond to the word of God. There's two, there's two ways you can respond, unbeliever. You can ignore this message and walk out of here and remain in the same condition, but that condition will lead you to eternal hell. Or you can respond in faith and trust. And how you might do so is you might come forward and talk to Pastor Lewis or myself. Or maybe turn to your neighbor next to you and and ask, how can I have a relationship with Christ? And they'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Maybe today, if there's a burden you're particularly bearing and you want to pray with one of us pastors, we'd be glad to meet you here down front to pray with you. 
And lastly, if you are desiring membership and want to join a body of Christ where you can grow in Christ-likeness, you can grow in stirring one another up to love and good works, we'd be glad to receive you to begin that process of church membership. That you might have a place to express that faith and to grow and to be used in the body of Christ. God, we love you and we pray that as we respond, we'll respond in a way that is pleasing to your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.